On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Drs. Gray Sutanto and Corey Brock about neo-Calvinism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is neo-Calvinism, when did it begin, why did it begin, what are the main figures that we should be aware of, is neo-Calvinism a deviation from classical Protestantism, is Christianity truly universal enough to use any culture or philosophy, so should we be tied down to certain dogmatic elements in the patristic or medieval era? How does neo-Calvinism think about the relationship between revelation and reason? What is the difference between common grace and natural law? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when I say serious thinking, I mean a lot of things with that. And one way we've tried to cash that out is explain it in terms of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, a cheerful confessionalism. Uh, we've picked these four things not because they're the only things that should go into thinking well, but I think they are just particular ones that we've wanted to really highlight so we want to be full of uh, things like kindness and, and love and patience, but we also want to be uh, rigorous and careful in how we present things and understand things, not, not losing the nuances, but caring about all, all of the textures that go on. And today I'm thrilled to introduce you all to somebody you know, Dr. Grace Sutanto, who's been on the show before, but also Dr. Corey Brock, to talk about their new volume on neo-Calvinism. So I, I have found their work to be especially interesting and enlightening, and I've really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to having some fun with this. So before we uh, jump into the topic itself, maybe we start with both of you guys to give me a little bit of a background on who you are. Uh, we can start with Corey. If you want to jump in and just tell me, here's your background, and then maybe what was it that got you interested in thinking about neo-Calvinism? And uh, then Gray can introduce himself. Thanks, Jordan. Really happy to be on the podcast with you. And uh, my name's, as you said, my name's Corey Brock, and I am originally from Mississippi. Uh, I studied at RTS in Jackson and became a pastor in the PCA. And then I also did a PhD in Scotland at University of Edinburgh with Gray. Uh, and we were, we were there together studying Bob Inc. And I now am a minister in the Free Church of Scotland at St. Columba's Free Church right on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, and I'm a lecturer at Edinburgh Theological Seminary, where I teach systematic theology and the preaching course there. And I really became interested in neo-Calvinism through reading Bob Inc. in seminary. So I kind of hit seminary right at the time where Bob Inc. was becoming uh, popular. The The publications had just come out for Reformed Dogmatics, and so they assigned those for our class and that was the beginning, and I'm still going. My name is Grace Sutanto. I teach uh, systematic theology here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Like Corey, I started reading Herman Bovink um, in seminary, and I was introduced to his Reformed dogmatics there. It's just been freshly translated, and it's the main systematic theological textbook basically throughout the entire um, systematic theology curriculum there. And it just struck me, that that Boving's work was really attentive to historical orthodoxy while still being holistic and engaged to modernity. That's really what attracted me to Boving's thought. And just as a side note too, prior to coming to seminary, I was really attracted to 
Kuiper's work um, in the area of especially the relationship between theology and philosophy. You know, we could talk about this too, Jordan, because you asked us before this podcast is being recorded, you know, you sent an email about questions that might be covered. And one of the chapters that we treated, one of your questions was about this, is the relationship between revelation and reason. And back in undergrad, um, I went to Biola University. I did a philosophy major there, and I also did a biblical studies and and theology uh, double major. So philosophy, biblical studies, and and systematic theology uh, together. What I, what I discovered there is that even though I loved my philosophy classes, learned a lot from it, read a lot of primary texts, and it really taught me how to think analytically and clearly, um, most of the philosophy department um, leaned toward a kind of libertarian view of free will, a melanistic view of the relationship between divine providence and human responsibility, whereas the biblical studies guys leaned towards Calvinism and divine sovereignty and monergism, um, and toward reformed theology. And, and it sort of convinced me, as I was thinking about this, it convinced me early on that there is a kind of antithesis between starting with scripture on the one hand, starting with philosophical reason on the other. So that initial reception of a Kuyperian view of the antithesis led me to discovering neo-Calvinism and finally leading me to Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics. And he's more nuanced than Kuyper, but that was my initial starting point anyway. And of course, Bovink, I think, is, is improving on Kuyper in a lot of ways. He's more nuanced. But that's my initial foray to neo-Calvinism. So I did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh with uh, Corey under James Eglinton there. We were first the first students there, I believe, on, on mm-hmm. Bovink. And James was just starting out, and we were just starting out. Corey was there a year before me, and um, we were working side by side, uh, thinking about Bobbing together. He ended up working on Bobbing's use of Schleiermacher, and I ended up working on Bobbing's view of theological epistemology. And it was a very fruitful time, and we're still, as Corey said, reading Bobbing, even until now. Hmm. Very awesome. So... I don't want to jump the gun too much yet. So let's start uh, first. Just give me the lay of the land. You know, when we talk about neo-Calvinism, what are we talking about? When did it begin? Why did it begin? You know, main figures that we should think about. I know we've mentioned Kuiper and Bobank. Uh, are there other people that we should be aware of that uh, for some reason aren't as popular in our own American context? Yeah, I'll start. Um, well, I mean, <clears throat> one of the reasons we've, ri- we've written this book is because if you go out on the internet and ask a question like that, you're going to get a lot of answers, a lot of different answers, a lot of answers that don't necessarily fit together. And so one of the things we've tried to do is go back to the sources and try to unveil uh, neo-Calvinism according to its original form in in its two principal founders, which is Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink. They lived uh, from the middle of the 19th century into 1920 and 21, respectively. And we we wanted to find neo-Calvinism as a historical, uh, confessional, mo- theological movement in the Netherlands from about 1880 to 1920. Uh, it was a Dutch movement. It was an ecclesial movement. It was a public movement. Um, and it was a movement that was all about uh, nuancing the marriage between Reformed confessionalist theology uh, for those guys, it was the three forms of unity in their Dutch reform context, and their uh, the dilemma of of trying to think of what it means to be a modern person. And so they lived in a in an age where um, things were changing around them all the time. Uh, 
the Enlightenment had happened in the previous century. The Spring of Nations had happened in 1848. Democracy was rising. Monarchies were falling all around them. So the political order was in revolution. Uh, the philosophical order was in revolution after Immanuel Kant. Uh, the scientific order was in revolution after Darwin. It was uh, a crazy time to be alive. And so Bobbink and Kuiper, among a few others, uh, and they had predecessors, but they were they were thinking chiefly, how do we uh, how do we use Reformed confessional theology to engage modern life? And uh, they did that by really trying to lean back into Calvin and Augustine especially and say, what does it mean to be Calvinist and Augustinian in in a day like today, in a day after the Enlightenment, after the Spring of Nations? And uh, so we, we think that what they did was really important because what they did was offer a model to all of us about what it means in the modern world that we live in to apply a historic confessional creedal reformed Protestant theology to our own particular circumstances, our, our own place. And they did that in some really unique ways. They adopted some uh, uh, unique forms of thought, all while trying to stay within the boundaries of, of Protestant confessional theology. And so they're they're really attractive in that way because they're both creative, but also uh, fundamentally uh, wed to to the Christian tradition, to classical Protestantism. So we we love to use the moniker they are Orthodox yet modern, and uh, they they offer I think a lot for us today to learn from. So th that's kind of the impetus behind the book and uh, a little bit of the historical parameters. Yeah, and I, and I think it's worth emphasizing that one of the insights uh, of the, what's the neo with regard to the Calvinism, right? So the Calvinism idea, it, they, they drew a lot of inspiration from what Calvin did with Geneva, this idea that reform theology is not just about the doctrines that you believe for the church, but it's also the public implications of those doctrines, right? So they're very inspired by that. But they also recognize that it's impossible to impersonate the exact form of what Calvin did in Geneva, because that's a very different time. So what's emerged in the neo-Calvinistic scholarship is this distinction between neo-Calvinism and paleo-Calvinism. And when we're discussing paleo-Calvinism, you, you talk about Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism, and Richard Mao points this out in his essay for the Oxford Handbook of Reform Theology. Um, the marker of one of the ways in which paleo-Calvinism is marked not by, by Kuiper is what he calls the fire of Servetus. Um, and I know there's nuances about that. And, you know, of course, Calvin wasn't just like vindictive or whatever, contrary to the common picture of, of what was going on. But Calvin's Geneva was a very established church model. There was no distinction between church and state plurality. It's not something that was um, advocated by Calvin or pluralism, let's say, of worldview pluralism. So neo-Calvinism is trying to say, OK, there's there's public theological implications for our uh, from our doctrines. Um, but how do we do that in a way that actually shows that that we're not just going back to paleo-Calvinism, we're not just going back to that model. But but now in, in the modern age, people seem to gravitate towards plurality. People uh, advocate for things like um, authenticity and freedom. These are new modern ideals. How can Christianity continue to speak into this new form while retaining its essence? And why is that a viable project? Because Kuiper and Bavik argued, um, God is still sovereignly at work today because of common grace, the modern world, which is unwittingly still echoing Christianity, even though it's against Christianity explicitly, it would it would 
there's an opportunity here to show that Calvinism has modern implications or has foundations that can actually provide for these modern ideals like democracy and plurality. So one of the benefits, hopefully, of writing this book and people receiving this book is people recognizing that actually so much of what we take for granted in modern confessional reform theology, even in America, presupposes those neo-Calvinistic advances and changes. We now take for granted that it was a bad thing that, um, you know, uh, uh, Catholics and the remonstrants were not allowed to worship together or something like that, right? It's a bad thing for the fire of Servetus to have happened. Uh, we take for granted now there is a separation between church and state and that even though we have a Christian state, we should allow, because of common grace, for um, plurality and pluralism. Uh, worldview diversity is actually um, something to be preserved, at least in this redemptive historical age. That's actually a, a neo-Calvinistic instinct. So that's very different from what you get out there under the banner of neo-Calvinism. I wanna, We won't want to try to say it's not theonomy. It's not reconstructionism. It's not crass transformationalism in a post-millennial tinge, right? Where our work actually advances the kingdom of God. It's something very distinct and it's actually presupposed by a lot of our uh, reform intuitions even today. Okay, that, that's that's very helpful. But so when I listen to you guys talk about it on Grace in Common, which I love the podcast, um, I, I'm i like, yes, I'm a neo-Calvinist. And then I get on the, the internet and I see everybody who talks trash about neo-Calvinism. They're like, well, that's not classical Protestantism. That's a deviation in some sort of way. So help me think through why are there negative or potentially negative connotations associated with things like neo-Calvinism? Yeah, so uh, I guess there's it's a two-pronged question there, and we'll start with the maybe the latter one that I heard from you, which is why is neo-Calvinism associated with you know some kind of it's a pejorative label, it's a bad thing, right? Um, well, I, I think because of the way in which neo-Calvinism has evolved in its own way in America, especially, I think neo-Calvinism is associated by some as a kind of theologically thin, confessionally thin sort of mode of engagement with modernity that tries to accommodate so much to modernity so that we have kind of a culturally engaged sort of position without actually advocating for confessional orthodoxy. Um, that, that's one strand, I think. And, and the second strand, too, is the association of Kuiper with Reconstructionism and theonomy, at least in America. It, it hasn't really happened, really, in the Netherlands, as far as I can tell. But um, Rush Dooney, um, the Chalcedon Foundation, um, and, and that kind of movement is associated with neo-Calvinism. I think those are two permutations. But again, what we try to show is that these are very... Um, accidental forms of neo-Calvinistic reception, or even even if, I don't know if we can even call it that, because it's really not rooted in um, a, re, uh, a critical re reception of, of these theological foundations that we find in neo-Calvinism. And I think it's worth emphasizing that even Kuiper and Boving too, um, they've first used the term neo-Calvinism only sort of, um, let's say, uh, nonchalantly and kind of involuntarily. Um, it was thrown at them as a term because it was also used as a pejorative um, against them. Um, basically, modern theologians were talking about their project as a an attempt to retrieve Calvinistic orthodoxy without any regard for the modern age. So you're using modern language, but you're really just Calvinistic fundamentalists. Um, so that was how the term was, was used as a pejorative against them. And they sort of just used it... Um, 
uh, without any sort of like high attachment to it, at least initially. So uh, um, it's worth thinking about more in terms of the historical context. I think, Corey, you wanted to add more to that. Well, I think I'll just add that I think what's happened now is that a, a lot of the critiques that have been present for on neo-Calvinism for the reasons that Greg just <clears throat> Greg, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, start over. Uh, yeah, I'll just add to that that I think a lot of the uh, critiques that have been present, and rightly so, for a lot of what's been called neo-Calvinism, uh, now uh, those maybe same thinkers, same authors are experiencing a little bit of a crisis in some ways, and that's because uh, when Bavinck's text got translated to English and everybody uh, in the Reformed community today realized Bavinck is a great theologian and we should all read him. Uh, you know, th there's this um, there's this problem now that you've got Bavinck and everybody appreciates him so much, but yet he is the chief theologian of neo-Calvinism at the same time. And so uh, what has been criticized immensely by, by many people uh, now um, has got to be squared with with the chief theologian himself, Bavinck. And so what what we're trying to say is that a, a lot of the criticisms, which are very valid, are actually uh, dealing with um, something other than historic neo-Calvinism, uh, but streams, like Gray pointed out, that have mutated and uh, actually misunderstood uh, a lot of what Bavinck and Kuyper said. Um, and so there, there are streams a long way down uh, and, and so what one of the things we're trying to say is that fundamentally neo-Calvinism was a confessional theological movement. It was about dogmatics. It was about Protestants. And uh, George Harink in our introduction begins by saying, uh, for whatever reason, especially in North America, the Dutch Reformed tradition did not carry on as a dogmatic tradition, as a as a theological tradition, but as a as a public engagement tradition. And Bavink and Kuyper did have very important views on public engagement, and we write about those in our book, but they're downstream from the more fundamental work of, of simply how to offer uh, uh, the modern world a, a theological system that is helpful and ministerial. Um, and so uh, I think because of Bavink's translation and, and Kuyper's translations by Lexham and others, um, there's been a real uh, tension now between well, what really is neo-Calvinism? Um, because if it's if it's Bavink, then uh, we've got to we've got to rethink it. And so Gray and I've I've tried to take up that task. Sweet, that's helpful. So another question I have, you know, I, I read um, the book, your book, um, Orthodox Yet Modern, where Bavink's engagement with Schleiermacher, um, and thinking through ideas related to that where is christianity truly universal enough to use sort of like any culture or philosophy including the things that we find in our modern period um is like is it flexible enough to do that should should we not be tied down by certain sort of i don't know dogmatic elements in the patristic or medieval era uh, i think in our current moment at least in sort of like the evangelical ish reformed ish context there's a a large boon in retrieval efforts. Uh, and I love retrieval, but what I see oftentimes is, well, you got to retrieve patristic and medieval. You can't retrie retrieve anything modern. And yet you've got this figureheaded here in Bavank who seems to say, no, I want to do orthodoxy and modernity. So help me walk through, walk me through a little bit of that idea. Is it universal enough to use any culture? And, and if so, why is that the case? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There's a lot there. 
Um, you know, the, the, ans- the simple answer is yes, right? It's, it's, re- it's re- for neo-Calvinism, it's retrieval uh, and development simultaneously. So in some ways, it's uh, the impetus of the Reformation itself. And uh, theologians have always been developing uh, throughout uh, Christian history. And so uh, I-, I think in some ways we, we see ourselves and, and Bob Inc. and others as just trying to carry on what we've always done since the beginning. Uh, Augustine did it. Aquinas did it. Uh, and, and so the answer is yes. And that certainly we, we uh, want to emphasize over and over again that the neo-Calvinist tradition seeks to be creedal, confessional, uh, bounded by uh, even the grammar of the church throughout the ages. But in terms of how, how we can, uh, how it's okay to use uh, any philosophy, uh, Bob Inc., Bavink made a very clear statement about this. Jordan, you've, I'm sure you've read it many times that uh, Bavink said that there's no philosophy that's out of bounds for Christian theology, that we can uh, use the philosophy of Kant or Plato, Aristotle. Um, and and what, what, how do we do that? Well, I think the question is, uh, as Bavink put it, we seek the truth wherever it can be found. So the question is not what, what age was a person living in. Uh, the question is, uh, is what they say a, a helpful description of reality? Um, is it true? Uh, and so Bob Inc. and Kuiper and, and we today, uh, Chris Watkins, a fa- fantastic example of this uh, recently, are trying to use uh, contemporary philosophies insofar as they speak truths uh, and ad- adapt and adopt those into the language of Christian thought. And there's a both um, intellectual aspect of that, uh, seeking to know better, to understand the world better in the light of God, to know all things in the light of God. And we're continuing to learn throughout the ages more and more. Uh, So, for example, the the postmodern philosophers teach us a lot about language in ways that we have not developed historically quite like they developed. And there's a lot of bad and unhelpful there, and there's a lot of very helpful there. And so a lot of theologians have sought to... uh, adapt and adopt uh, truth from a philosophy of language in the 20th century, wherever it can be found, and to incorporate that into Christian theology. Uh, And at the same time, um, it's not only the intellectual aspect of it, of just simply what is true, but also it's the ministerial aspect of it. So uh, a Christian pastor has to do this. A preacher has to do this. You know, this is really just the work of contextualization that uh, we have to speak in the language of our culture. We have to talk about Christianity and authenticity. We have to talk about Christianity and and individuality uh, because that's exactly what our people, the people of God and non-Christians that we're seeking to bring along into the faith, uh, they need to understand how Christ relates to these things. And um, the philosophers can help us do that. They can help us uh, put the pieces together as long as we subsume them within the boundaries of orthodoxy. And uh, there's a lot of good examples of that happening. Um, but really, that's to say that we think that theology has to be rewritten for every age. And that's for a reason. You know, if, if it was other than that, why would we continue to write theology? Why not just stop what we got already? You know, and um, so, so, yeah, there's lots more to say, but Gray, jump in. Yeah, I think it's, that's, this is really important because not only is representation something that is not desirable for the purposes of contextualization, but it's also impossible, right? Um, you know, one of the best critiques against biblicism is to say that if you imagine yourself or you think yourself as purely biblical, you're actually smuggling in philosophical assumptions that you're not aware about. 
under the guise of being biblical. And I, I would ar- argue that that if you think of yourself, you know, kind of sort of the same line of argument, if you think of yourself as just purely classical, you're still smuggling in modern assumptions that you're not aware about. Um, because uh, to deny modernity as defined as simply the contemporary or the new is to deny yourself. You are a child of the modern age, whether you like it or not. You're living in the 21st century. There's going to be intuitions that you've imbibed in the 21st century that is now within your world vision, uh, whether you like it or not. And um, Boving and Kyber is telling us to be aware of those things and also to be critical of those things and to embrace them insofar as you're still a human being made in the image of God and God is still sovereign and the world is still replete with his common grace because of that sovereignty that that he he actually gifts humanity in every age with gifts epistemic moral and and life-giving gifts so that we can actually continue to enjoy enjoy him even today so i think you know those who want to repersonate they're still working under the conditions of modernity uh, whether they like it or not so even if we're trying to retrieve augustine let's say or we're trying to retrieve aquinas let's say we're still trying to write books that are rigorous under the conditions of peer review, which is determined by the conditions of the research university, which has a particular genealogy, right? So um, on the one hand, you want to retrieve this sort of content, but you're still using it. You're still using the content that, and arguing for that content in the form of the modern conditions of the research university, let's say. That's one example. So that's what Bobby and Carper are trying to say. It's, 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 it's being self-critical of who we are while at the same time not hating who we are. We don't want to just fly from the world. Hmm. That, that, that's helpful. And before I jump to another question, I, I do want to ask a little bit of a follow-up. I've seen quite a bit recently of that's critical of what's called critical realism. And I'm assuming you guys know that terminology. Uh, I think of people like Alistair McGrath, who's made extensive use of that terminology but there's been a lot of criticism of that as if that is uh, some sort of modern construct and that's not inhabitable in uh, the patristic or the medieval mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that somebody like Bob Inc. would be using a form of critical realism and it would go ni- fit nicely with how you guys have explained this. Is it, Am I thinking about that right or am I totally mistaken? Well, Gray wrote a book about this, so I'll let him... Uh... I'll let him answer. Uh, well, you know, the book is, is wholly descriptive of Bobbing's project. And and one of the things I say in the book is just how how contentious and how flexible those terms are of realism and even idealism, right? Um, I mean, in, in one sense, again, well, there's, there's so many different rabbit trails that we can go through here, but critical realism, in one sense, is a very modest claim. You know, so so critical realism simply says that there are objects in reality that you can know about, but you should be chastened in your claims about reality because subjectivity does get in the way, you know, um, because you're a finite human being. So in that sort of sense, I think as Christians, we should be, biblically speaking, attuned to kind of critical realism because we're finite creatures. We're not God. We don't have a God's eye view of things. We know things as dependent on him as finite creatures, and we need one another because of sin. We tend to suppress the truth. We don't want to see what's there. And so we want to, oftentimes, you know, even if it's talking about the good, right, we want to redefine the good in our own way. So we want to, we want to have a chaste understanding of things. So um, in that sense, it's really not uh, controversial. But then critical realism is used in, in different ways. Whether or not you can know the thing in itself. Do we know the thing in itself by way of representations? Or is there a direct sort of connection to the thing in itself, Right. And here, 
I, I just don't think that it's it's as simple as as saying, well, we just know it as it is, if that makes sense. Um, if you want a kind of naive, realistic take, I would say Thomas Reed is an example of that. Uh, Reed argued that when you're taking a look at a chair, for instance, there is no there is no idea of chair through which you see the chair. You simply see chairness. And Boving explicitly um, critiqued that sort of perspective. He argued that we know by way of representations, it still represents reality, but there is a gap between us and reality because we are, again, finite. And so we know by way of representations, the chair is represented to our mind in a particular way. So this is not only in RD1, where he actually uses lots of classical sources there, but in Christian worldview and, and philosophy of revelation, especially, he, he talks about this, this gap between um, the, the subject and the object. But there is still a kind of realism there insofar as the logos connects us to the thing. The representation represents reality because of the logos and the organic character of all existence, which points to the Trinity. Anyway, I don't want to just rehash uh, the arguments I made there, but, but you know, there's just flexible ways and and. Even idealists would, would say that they're concerned about reality. You actually read them anyway. Yeah. Well, I'll just add to that. It's important to say that uh, different ages ask different questions. And so approaching, um, approaching it as if, well, the, the church fathers didn't talk about critical realism or the questions of epistemology like we do. Uh, well, you know, I don't know that that's the most helpful way to approach it. And this is exactly what we're trying to say is that uh, – well, we need to be addressing the, the issues and questions of our own age and, and different ages ask different questions. And, and so um, this is exactly the neo-Calvinist uh, impetus. So, so uh, one question I definitely want to have you guys spend some time explaining to me is the difference between common grace and natural law. Are these, how, how are they related? What's the differences? What are the distinctions that we should be making between those two concepts? Yeah. Uh, I can start, and then Gray, yeah. you Before can did, add your your thoughts. Of, you you did write the chapter on this one, so I'll let you go with this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. It's been a little while, but yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things to say is that, in large measure, if we define natural law as something like um, God's gift to humanity. Uh, a common gift whereby humanity knows what's good for them and knows what's bad for them, you know, knows what's, what's moral and right and knows what's wrong. Um, Bovink and Kuiper uh, clearly affirm natural law um, as we do. Uh, the question uh, that we want to address is not really uh, what natural law is or that it is. Uh, that's not um, our, our, the neo-Calvinist uh issue, if you want to say, with natural law. The, the question is more of how does natural theology happen? No, sorry, natural law happen. Natural theology too, by the way, but uh, natural law happen. Um, and so uh, what, we want to, what we want to suggest is that natural law um, is simply a gift of God's common grace. So when you say, what's the difference in natural law and common grace? It's, it's that natural law is actually one of the gifts of God's common grace. Uh, so God, God's common grace is, uh, you can define it in a, in a couple of ways, but one of the ways is it's God's patience in love towards the creation that he made after the fall. So he, uh, he loves the world that he made and he wants to preserve it unto its ultimate end, which is the kingdom of God. 
And even after the fall, he's not willing to judge it outright. He's he desires to express his love towards it and giving gifts. And those gifts, Gray mentioned earlier, epistemic gifts, the gift of consciousness to humanity. That's probably the ultimate common grace. Um, all sorts of gifts, the gift uh, not only of consciousness, but of food. Um, the fact that our food tastes good, one of the great gifts of common grace. Uh, but uh, an overarching category of the common grace gifts, we might call them the graces. So grace can be used both with respect to God's uh, disposition towards creation, that word of unmerited favor and love, uh, but also to, to define an object itself, the graces. Um, one of those graces, an immense category of those graces, is God's communication of the moral order to the hum human consciousness. And that is by way of revelation. So what we want to say is that uh, one of the immense parts of God's common grace is his gift of natural law, which is communicated to the human consciousness prior to all reason by revelation. Uh, so so God, God speaks to us by way of the Holy Spirit, the common operation of the Spirit. Uh, Romans 2 makes this clear. And in that, um, we don't first know what's right or wrong by sitting around and thinking about it carefully. We know what's right and wrong uh, by way of mere consciousness, uh, and that's because God has revealed it to us. So we want to dissociate um, the operation of mere reason, in other words, uh, from, from the operation of common grace. And, and one of the things we want to say is that there's not really any such thing as mere reason. So um, reason itself is a product of common grace. Uh, the only reason that reason works and is upheld and works to some degree is because God has chosen in his love and patience to uphold the possibility of thinking and to uphold the possibility of consciousness that, presuppose, that is presupposed in the act of thinking. And so uh, the gift of natural law, of, of an understanding of the moral order, is a gift of revelation that is prior to all thinking. And so anyway, the, we have a lot uh, to say about that subject, and that pertains also to revelation and reason and the relationship between those. Um, yeah. If Great. I can add to, to Corey, um, it, you know, your chapter on, on common grace in the gospel, I think was really useful in the book. Um, I heartily endorse what Corey said in that chapter. Um, and and he has a he has a excursus in common grace and natural law. And one of the things he says is that we would believe like with the Thomas, there is an objective moral order um, that the moral law of God is is a reflection of the eternal law and that this law is received and implanted in us. And we would argue that that that, well, the implanted stuff is, is more in, in a different chapter. But but we would argue that where common grace comes in, it's not just this this gift of natural law that we have access to it, but it's also the the momentary access. In other words, because of common grace, um, in particular moments of history, in particular moments of even a particular conversation, there could be momentary agreements between the unbeliever and the natural law, if that makes sense. And common grace is what accounts for and what makes possible that momentary agreement. And because it's grace, it's never something you could just um, rely upon or um, presuppose what actually happened. But in particular moments, uh, when you're evangelizing to somebody, when you're talking to somebody about um, the moral law, there would be some kind of an agreement. 
Now, we would, we would say, therefore, that there's an objective moral order that is known, but the, the epistemic and subjective reception of that in terms of actually accepting what they know in their hearts, that depends on common grace, if that makes sense. So, you know, the reason why I think the neo-Calvinists um, are kind of reticent to talk about natural law directly is not because they doubt the actual metaphysical existence or the authority of natural law, but the they doubt whether or not there is going to be a subjective epistemic reception or acceptance of the natural law, because that latter side only happens by way of common grace. Um, so Matthew Kamen's book, Christian Hospitality and um, Muslim Immigration, has great great sections on this too, and he talks about it in that way. And, and we try to just clarify there, there that um, the reason why, again, there is momentary accesses is because of common grace. So I think I think one of the differences too is that when you're not inhabiting this neo-Calvinistic mode of thinking of making this distinction between natural law and common grace, there is this, at, at least habitually in the writings that I've encountered, just an assumption that when you talk to the natural unbeliever or natural person made in the image of God, they're just going to agree with you on natural matters, but they're going to disagree with you on supernatural matters. But what this, this tradition emphasizes that even on natural matters, you need illumination to discuss what those natural matters actually are. Um, illumination that is by common grace or illumination by way of special grace, both ways, right? So that's something we, we should say as well. So the question that I have now is related to what would be, I guess, terminology of principled pluralism. Is this something that is characteristic of neo-Calvinism? Is it not? Is it a distortion of neo-Calvinism? And if it is something that is characteristic of neo-Calvinism, I want to know if it's sustainable, because I think people looking around in our own cultural context, they look, they see all the, the mess and the degradation that's going on, and they would say, well, look, it's definitely not sustainable. Just look next door, uh, look on TV, and you can see that there's, uh, there's, it's not helping us. So, is it characteristic of neo-Calvinism? And if it is, how, how is that sustainable? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, let me start and say that, you know, this is a really big topic and we could talk about it a long time. And um, I guess uh, I, I think of two rather cheeky uh, comments to start off, if I can be allowed, and then we'll nuance this a bit more. But um, the first would be that, you know, th there is no sustainable political order until Jesus Christ returns. Um, and so what, what principle pluralism, which is, which is just a piece of a broader neo-Calvinist political theology tries to do is to, um, is to provide as much opportunity for, uh, faithful, uh, witness unto the kingdom of God in the present order. Um, I mean, the, the other slightly cheeky comment would just be that every every Protestant Christian is a principled pluralist um, in some way, to some degree. If, if principled pluralism is a spectrum, you know, there there are some that are further down the road than the others. But, you know, if you think Servetus, to go back to what Gray mentioned earlier, if you think Servetus should have been spared from being burned alive for his views on salvation and the Trinity and whatnot, then you're in some way a principled pluralist. You know, you... Uh, you think that the Bible gives clear instruction that, including positive biblical law, on what to do with a false teacher, and, and uh, it's not not that. And 
in other words, you believe that Christianity requires in its own logic the freedom of religion to some degree. And that's, you know, central to principled pluralism. So all, I think all of us are, are there in modernity to some degree. And that's a product, product of the Protestant logic. And, you know, remember with Servetus that it was Rome that condemned Servetus and he escaped uh, execution. And, and then the Protestant uh, state had had the opportunity to think more clearly and they didn't um but uh, principle pluralism let me just say a, a couple of things briefly one principle pluralism depends on sphere sovereignty and sphere sovereignty is a is an idea from kuiper that essentially says that god created um structures uh he created the family he created uh the church of course um he he at least created uh through the a collection of family, the possibility of state, and of course he created and commanded culture. And so at least these four um, structures exist, and there's many subordinate structures in each of those, uh, especially underneath the, the, the realm of society and church that exist. Only in the second coming of Christ can all the domains of life be organically united together, uh, where the family, the state, culture, society is sanctified, truly one. Uh, only only in the eschaton will the church become the state in the sense that the state is Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church. Uh, and, and so principal pluralism actually starts there with that eschatological thought that in the second coming of Christ, um, there will be a true organic union of all the structures that exist that make up basic society. But until then, each of the spheres that exist have, by way of God's own creation, a relative freedom and relative authority, a, f a freedom from the others, yet connected to the others organically with, with, with shared boundaries, but also uh, a freedom from them in terms of authority. And uh, the pr principle of Christianity within that pertains to every single sphere in that uh, the church doesn't try to become the state. Um, the church doesn't try to become uh, the family outright or um, the, the many institutions of the culture. But Christianity, the org organism of Christianity, Christians as salt and light in the midst of the world speak into those and witness to the kingdom of God in the midst of each of those spheres. And so principal pluralism is basically just to say uh, that within the domain of sphere sovereignty, that the state uh, can't be the theologian. Um, and because of that, the state um, has to protect as the arm of justice, the freedom of human beings to uh, to develop their own religious views and to, to have freedom to develop their own worldview. I think, I think that most Protestants are, are there uh, to some degree in the modern world. It's just a question of, of to what degree are you a pluralist in that way? Uh, how much freedom and, and where are the limits and how exactly do you want the state to be related to the church? But um, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, questions like is principle pluralism sustainable? Well, uh, no, but it has to be. Um, it, it's, it's um, we, we have to, because the gospel is non-coercive, we have to at least give some freedom of religion uh, to human beings. And of course, based on the Christian tradition, that's what's developed in the modern world. Um, so that's a very quick answer that doesn't attend to any of the nuances and, and the big difficult questions at all. 
but it, it's just a bit of an introduction, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I mean, that's a wonderful uh, starting foray into it. I would just recommend, uh, this is such a big topic, I would just recommend a couple of texts out there. Again, I mentioned Kaming's book, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration. I'd also mention the works of Jonathan Chaplin, um, a wonderful introduction to principal pluralism. And and especially, and, and you know, hat tip to Robert Joustra for pointing me to this text, but the exchange between Jonathan Chaplin and Oliver O'Donovan and um, kind of a symposium of texts that respond to Oliver O'Donovan's, I think, Desire of the Nations when it first came out. Um, and O'Donovan, in the response to Chaplin, basically says something to that effect, that there is... Uh, he doesn't trust something like, I can't remember exactly the, the wording right now, but something about pluralism just cannot produce the kind of stability that we would want uh, with regard to a Christianized perception of moral order. But but Chaplin's argument is, is simple. You know, I think, well, he, he produces it in a very eloquent language, but to put it simply, if Jesus is Lord, we are not. <laughs> and um we don't get to be the leaders and we don't get to be the determinants of what society ought to be until Jesus's return. And the concern for the Christian statesman is actually justice for everyone who's represented in the nation. And a nation is an organic entity. Um, it doesn't just have one slice of its history as the defining moment of the nation, but rather it's, it's the nation is the present moment of, it includes the present moment of whoever is here now and to make a, a, particular tenet of Christianity, a constitutional sort of factor of the nation um, uh, would be to, to render, would be to do injustice to a particular slice of its citizenship, if that makes sense. So, well, we also had a podcast interview with him and it was very insightful. Well, that, that's fascinating. And I can hope I you'll add, find that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just add one, one comment? I mean, this isn't to, to flesh out the details at all, but just to say that the neo-Calvinist uh, theological, uh, I guess you could say, is really a very grassroots, um, it's really to emphasize that uh, we can seek something of a Christian commonwealth, if you will, but we, we never do that from the top down, but from the bottom up. And that is um, maybe a way to summarize the whole of it. And that's that uh, what really matters for the church is to be the to be salt and light, uh, that, that the gospel matters for everything. And so the call in the neo-Calvinist public engagement is not for the institutional to be wedded to other institutions or to, to overstretch its boundaries, but for Christians to go in, into the world and, for, and to allow the gospel to matter for everything. And so uh, we seek something of a, a Christian commonwealth and pray for that. First Timothy 2, that the king might indeed believe, all people might believe, so that there may be peace in the land for the church. Uh, but we're careful to protect um, protect the freedom of religion uh, by, by maintaining the fact that the state cannot be an arm of, the, of, of theological determination. Hmm. Uh, and and yeah. so it's a very grassroots-oriented ministry. So if you could put it another way then, the, the leavening or the transformational edge of neo-Calvinism is a bottom-up, organic, spiritual kind of transformation and not in, and not primarily by way of institutional force. So in class, I, I, I try to resist talking about transformationalism because of that sort of, you know, hard-edged, institutionalized, even post-millennial sense of transformationalism that's out there. So I'd rather talk about chastened transformational witness, um, which prioritizes the work of the organic church 
um, as individuals go out into the different spheres of society. That's super helpful. Well, I can tell you guys who are listening, we could probably talk for two more hours about this. But instead of doing that, what I'm going to tell you to do is go buy the book from Lexum. Um, number one, I love what Lexum's doing. They're publishing awesome books. They're beautiful covers. And this one is no exception. Uh, and plus, Corey and, and Gray are just really doing awesome scholarship. Uh, so I think you can probably tell from this. And you should go check out the podcast, Grace and Common. You need to listen to their stuff. Go buy. I'm going to link to all their books so that you can have easy access to them. If you haven't read them, you should probably go pick them up. Um, I, I can't recommend their stuff highly enough. So they're just really doing awesome stuff and in the right spirit. Um, I love the, the whole the whole idea behind the Grace in Common podcast. Just the idea of Grace in Common with these people on different continents and it, different experiences, sharing this the same sort of doctrinal conviction of, about grace, bringing them in common. I mean, I just think it's awesome. So I commend all that they're doing. I think it's it's fantastic work as well as this volume, which I think you guys are really going to enjoy. So you need to get your hands on it. And um, yeah, so for all who've been listening, we do thank you for tuning in to the Only Analytic Baptist and Confessional Podcast on the Planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.